He goes through all the hardships and all the life that all of the people around there, hoping that just maybe one day he will encounter this young lady and he'll get to know her and that she will begin to love him as he has already begun to love her. Now, if this sounds like a familiar story to you, I can tell you that it's found in two different places. Siren Kierkegaard, who is a 19th century philosopher and theologian, told this story of the prince and the peasant. But it's also the story of God's love for humanity. He used that story to show us that this is exactly what Jesus did. He says, I can't go down there as king and master and Messiah and Lord and royalty because people only see those aspects of me, but they will not know me. They won't seek after me. But I love them so much, I would give up all that I have. I would leave heaven for earth. I would live amongst the people. This is the the incarnation of Christ being fully God and fully man who dwelt amongst us where God always wanted to be was amongst his people. That was his desire that his dwelling place would be with man. And Jesus said, Father, I will go down and I will fall in love with them and pray that they will fall in love with me and I will serve them and I will get to know them and I will give up my kingdom for them. Isn't that a beautiful story? But is it a true story? You see, so many times when we read the Bible, people often uh, reduce the Bible down to moralistic teachings or some sort of stories that may or may not have happened according to historical fact. And it's easy for us in our common language to refer to anything in the Bible as a story. But the truth is, it's the truth. And so as we read the Bible, what we know is that God has given us the Bible so that we might understand the historical reality of his desire to be with us and all that he went through. The Bible is indeed a story, but it is a factual story. And it's a story of God and the story of man and how we interact with one another and how we diverted from different places and how God continues to remain consistently within his character and how man consistently tries to deny God and all the things that God has to offer as he woos us back to be with him forever. We live in a day now of moral Christ, or, or, or excuse me, of liberal Christianity or progressive Christianity, where it is more uh, apropos for the day to debate whether Scripture is true or not. People like to get on board with all the flaws, the errors from all of the the different translations. Well, the Bible's been translated so many times. How can it be true? And if you were to truly sit down and devote your life to that type of study, to learn the original language of the Hebrew and the Greek and the even the Latin Vulgate, if you were to learn all those things, what you would find is there's only a handful of words that really are truly debatable. And even if those words are debatable, nothing about the Scripture changes in its overall reality and purpose and truth. Nothing changes. I was looking at Ikea the other day. Do you guys know Ikea? Ikea sells furniture in a hundred different languages in countries all over the world, and it's the exact same furniture. You know how they get away with that? They have printed the instructions in cartoons, pictures, if you will, not words. They realized it was far more challenging to interpret the words in all these different languages, and so what they would do is set their instructions guide up so you could follow it by pictures. And you know what's really interesting about Ikea furniture? Has anybody ever put that together? What's really interesting about Ikea furniture, you know the first step in Ikea furniture, you know what it is? They start with a promise. They show you the finished product before you unpack it from this flat box. The Bible begins with, in the beginning there was God. It starts with a promise. It starts with the reality that everything that comes after these words is written for the benefit of mankind. And while some may debate 
the translation or the errancy of Scripture. That some may debate, well, the Bible doesn't talk about this subject or that subject or this subject or that subject. The real problem with that level of thinking is that if we can redefine what the Bible doesn't do, we don't have to pay attention to what it does do. If we can begin to to find flaws and errors here or there, then we can actually invalidate the entire thing and therefore not need to pay attention to it all the time, any time, or some of the time, except when it's convenient for us. Any cherry pickers out there? Anybody just like to grab the nuggets that apply to them? Years ago when my, my children were small, they're 20 and 22 now, so they're 17 months apart from them, and we, we tried to, to read Scripture to our kids. We taught them to memorize Scripture. We wanted to plant those seeds of the reality of God in their lives very, very young, and we had this, this Dodge Caravan that had these integrated car seats, and they were strapped in back there in the middle seat together, and the two of them were there, and, and the, they were fighting. I mean, they were brother and sister, and they were you know, 17 months apart, and they were fighting like kids do. And all of a sudden, Ethan, our, our, our son, the younger of the two, says to the other, Obey your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Even at a young age, he knew how to misquote scripture. Who taught him that? Probably his dad, right? The Bible is provided for us to show us God, to show us ourselves. And while many believe that the Bible does not address all these specific things in our current day, in our current reality in 2021, and all the things that are going on in our world doesn't cover that, the Bible doesn't talk about that. Listen, if you're looking for the Bible to address all these different issues in your life, you're missing the reality that the specificity of the Bible is to talk about all the people who are made in God's image who continue to live on this earth and challenged by the same from the very beginning. From the very beginning. Mankind, like it or not, has not changed. I guess it's easy if we evolved from monkeys for us to believe that we didn't begin this way, flawed and separated from God. But there's nothing, there's nothing that shows us that man has ever really changed from the day in the garden when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit they were told not to eat from, and their scales and their eyes fell off, and they understood good and evil from that day forward, and death entered into this world. Nothing has changed. Man continues to be selfish, Man continues to walk his way. Man continues to need instruction. And if you don't believe that, just ask a woman. It was meant to get your attention. I hope it did. As we continue our series in Believe, we're in chapter 4 of Believe. And the Believe, for those of you who are not familiar with this, there's one back there at the back. Pay $5 for it. Steal it. I don't care what you do. It's full of God's Word. It's actually paraphrased throughout a lot of the NIV version. It's a great story of the things that we believe as Christians. And one of the foundational beliefs that we have as Christians is the fact that the Bible is true. It is infallible. It has always been true. It is true now, and it will be true until God comes back. And the Bible has continued to give us all of the realities of that. Because when I read the Bible, I always insert myself into it. And I realize very quickly that the Savior that went to the cross and gave up his kingdom and lived amongst all the people forever did so for me. Because I needed it. Because I would have never have gotten there on my own. Even if I read every single page, I must also believe it to be true. So I encourage you pick up a copy of that, read along with us, join our book club. We have great conversations on Thursday. Today in chapter 4, we get to the place of the Bible, and the key ideal is I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God that guides my beliefs and actions. Friends, the Bible is either all right, all wrong, or all made up. 
and you need to come to a place quickly in your life to decide which that is. It's either all right, all wrong, or all made up. It's not some right, mostly right, portionately right, right when I need it to be. It is either all right, all wrong, or all made up. Because when you get to that place where you determine whatever that answer is for you, and for, for not just millennials, but for a lot of people, this absolutism that I'm speaking of today is asinine. How can you be so, so assumptive on this? Because brothers and sisters, I've tried everything else and it doesn't work. There is nothing in literature, there is nothing in history, there is nothing in documents from the past that speak so clearly and truthfully about the reality of my life than the Bible does. Nothing. Nothing at all. And so my foundational belief and the key idea today is this, that I believe the Bible is right. It is the inspired word of God. That yes, man wrote it down, but God gave him the words to say, and he wrote it down, and he wrote it down for our benefit so that we might know not just how to live morally each and every day, but that we might know how to interact with one another and how we may interact with a God who is chasing after us. Now, for many of us, that may seem warm and fuzzy that God is pursuing me, but for some people, it ought to frighten them. God is pursuing me. He's not pursuing for judgment as we talked last week about salvation. He's not just trying to save us from a reality of hell. He's trying to save us to a right relationship with him. And there's no better place to have a right relationship with him than know him. Now, I've heard pastors say this before, and I've heard other people say that the Bible is kind of like a diary, like God's diary. Here's the problem with that. Diaries are meant to keep secrets. And the Bible is not meant to hide anything from us regarding the true character or nature of God. And so for those who say there's not a God or I don't understand God or he's too big for me and I can't get that, read your Bible more because he's revealing to us and he's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit to better understand what the Bible is saying to us. And he has woven it together and connected it together from thousands of years and multiple authors. The consistency of the story remains that way. And so the question that we want to ask this morning in regard to the Bible specifically is how do I know God and his will for my life? Now, I'm 45 years old. I oscillate all the time about, God, am I doing what you want me to do? Am I in the right place? Am I, am, I, am I supposed to be doing this? Should I be doing this? I'll have an opportunity dangled in front of me from time to time, and it causes me to want that. Are you all kind of in the same place? I mean, sometimes there's, there's, there's the better job, right? Some of you know that prior to, to ministry, I worked retail, and the thing about retail is that people in retail quit a lot. They go someplace else because the money's better for, for a time and somebody else wants to get you and you go to someplace where the money is. I even heard a pastor one day say, son, go where the money is. God's everywhere. I'm like, brother, I'm still trying to find the money. I, I don't know what's going on here, right? The truth of the matter is that we struggle to find what God's will is for our life and there's multiple reasons why we struggle with that and most of those I think can be defined the truth that we don't actually look at God's word as it was written and the purpose for it being written and applying it in reality to today's world instead of looking at it as an archaic document that continues to speak to our hearts. And so this morning I want to show you a couple of things that, that I think can help us to understand how to know God and to know God's will. And first and foremost, I think we have to understand the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture, the ability for Scripture to speak into our lives with authority because it is the inspired Word of God written down by man, preserved over history and time and multiple translations and multiple wars and multiple battles and multiple politics and all those things. God's Word has been preserved for us because He loves us and cares for us. It is not a diary to keep a secret. It is an open book to say, here's who I am if you ever wanted to know. 
I'd love to tell you about me because I know everything about you. And so when we understand the authority of Scripture, what we realize is that the Bible has the ability and the right to speak into our lives, both the good and the bad. I find it always amusing that whenever people want to get married, they seem to want to get married in a church, but they never ever go to church any other time except for maybe Christmas or Easter. What is it about the authority of going to a pastor and having them marry you that matters so much? Why is that important? You don't ask the pastor to show up at your divorce hearing. But yet to my Catholic brothers and sisters, they actually do seek annulment from the church before they get remarried because somehow they want God's word to be authoritative in their marriage and in their divorce. I don't mean to just pick on my Catholic friends because you could apply that to a lot of things in our life. What we want is for God to bless the things we want to do, but not to even talk about the things that we ought not be doing. And the last thing we really want to know is to know what we ought not be doing and know that God knows that too. And so the best way to do that is ignore the scripture. As long as I don't know, ignorance is indeed bliss. I feel like I'm just reading my autobiography this morning. Because I know none of you try to think as possible. An absolute authority of scripture reminds us that God is in control of all things and all aspects, especially the details. He's not a, not a deist in such a way that he just thumped things into motion and walked away. He truly wants a personal relationship with us. Daniel was a, a prophet who was under King Nebuchadnezzar, who was held in captivity after they were exiled out of the promised land, and they went to live there. And in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, we see this really interesting thing about what God has to say regarding his authority and how we know his authority through Scripture. It says this in Daniel 4, 34, 35. It says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did not believe in God until he met Daniel. I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored because he was going crazy. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. Pay attention to this line. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does what he wants. God does what he wants, not just because he can, but because he can. God does what he wants because he is the supreme being. God does what he wants because he spoke everything into creation. And the only way we know he did that is because he preserved it for us in the scripture to tell us about him so that we might know of his divine power and his authority and his will, his great and powerful sovereign will, the thing that we will never, ever thwart or change. And so until we accept the authority of Scripture, not just in our lives, but over the history of mankind, we're going to miss out on what's happening there. We have a door open somewhere. Not sure where. All right, thank you. Nobody panic. That's just an electrical amen. The authority of Scripture is so important in our lives that if we let things like that distract us away from that, it is very easy for us not to go back to it. Some of you have taken up the challenge of reading your Bible in a year. And many of you have decided, I'm going to start at the beginning in Genesis. I just applaud you for that. I think it's a bad plan, but I applaud you for that. Because you might make it through Genesis. You might even get into Exodus. When you get into Leviticus, you are done. It's March the 7th today. You're probably done. You should be about there in your Bible reading. You're probably done. 
Let me suggest to you to get on a Bible reading platform that talks to the whole of Scripture that maybe gets you in the Old Testament and the Psalms and in the New Testament every single day so you can see the magnificent weaving of God that continued on not just from generation to generation but from millennia to millennia. From the beginning, God was, is, and continues to be. That's why his name is I am, not I will be or I was. It is I am. And he reveals that to us, the authority of his scripture. And if we don't bow to the authority of his scripture, we miss out on all the other things in the Bible. And to be perfectly honest with you, one of the worst things I do each and every Sunday is preach. It's one of the worst things I can do. Because in Jesus' time and before then, the authority of scripture was enough just to stand up and start reading it. And the people understood it because they had a knowledge of the one true God and the belief that his authority was strong and that his desire to be in relationship with humanity was strong. We do not live in that reality today. It's told to us in the book of Ezra that after they rebuilt the temple, he began to read the scrolls. And as he began to read the scrolls that they found, the people stood in honor of God's word. And they stood there all day long. And the rest of the priests went around and they asked him, do you understand what's been read to you? And they began to preach and they began to teach. It wasn't that they didn't have knowledge before they had authority. They recognized authority and then they sought knowledge. And so many of us want to be convinced Blind faith, pastor, that's a really hard thing for us. Blind faith means that I just trust this and this and this and this. Would you rather blind faith or keep doing what you're doing? I mean, tell me how different is that from what your pragmatic faith seems to be getting you? How's that yielding? The authority of Scripture tells us that God's sovereign will is strong and solid. It doesn't change. And even Nebuchadnezzar, who did not believe in Daniel's God, who made this idol for himself to be worshipped when the alarm blew. Isn't that funny that we'd be talking about that? I just now made that connection. Thank you, Lord. When you hear the horn, bow to me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, I'm not going to do it. Nebuchadnezzar knew there was a God that day in Israel who happened to be amongst the Babylonians. God in your world, do people see that when you're out there in your places of business or work or play? I've already mentioned this, but I want to bring it back. The consistency of Scripture is yet another thing that we can understand who God is and know His will. And we can watch the consistency of Scripture because what He began with in the beginning, He continued with when He said, let us make man in our image. We were told that it was more than just Him. It was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first speaking of the Trinity, which I know that word's not in the Bible, but we see where God manifests Himself in different ways and interacts with humankind in different ways, both as the Father, as the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see that throughout Scripture. And what we see throughout Scripture is that mankind needs to be rescued. And over and over and over again, we throw away the life preserver and say, no, no, someone else is coming for me. And over and over again, we don't recognize that when someone's trying to help us, they're really just trying to control us and let us and, and think for us. And the last thing we want is for some distant God to be in our minds telling us what we want to do. Friends, I got news for you. God does not want you to be some sort of automaton where you can't make your own decisions. He wants to give you power and authority and the reality to say that this is the right decision. It's not debatable. The debate comes from you doing the right thing, not knowing the right thing, because he's not hiding that from you. The debate comes from whether I want to do that or not, because the cost is so great, when what you're realizing is this cost is so great amongst your relationships on the horizontal, but it's really costing you on the relationship on the vertical. 
that when I choose to go along with what man has to say, which is contrary to the Bible, I am, I am absolutely looking at God and saying, I'm not so sure that your Bible's consistent because I have all these errors in there or it doesn't speak this way. And how can a good God do all these terrible things? How can he tell his own people to go out and kill all the people who worship these false gods? Don't we live in a time of diversity by which all these false gods should be able to be worshipped? Because after all, you do you, bro. You go do your own thing, and as long as it doesn't impede upon my thing, it should just be fine. And us Christians, us, us Bible-thumping Christians, we're a whole bunch of hypocritical, judgmental meanies. And, and, and we're, we're told that way because we don't, we don't welcome people of different types in. We don't agree with their lifestyle, so we, we, we damn them to hell. I got news for you. I don't have that authority and power because the Scripture says only one person does, and that's God. Now, if I act that way, I'm a jerk. But it doesn't mean I have to condone sinful behavior that keeps you out of a right relationship with a loving, caring God who has revealed himself through Scripture and has consistently spoken about all the things, not the specific things that apply to the common day, but all the things that apply to the common man. It's not the general things. Well, you know, the Bible never speaks uh, of, of homosexuality or abortion or, or nuclear war. The Bible never talks about those things. But I think we can realize that whether you agree with those things or not, the end result is always bad. And what God speaks to is mankind's heart to wage war, to kill born children, to have immoral sexual relationships. Because he knows the damage that does to the heart of an individual, to a human being. Consistently he does that. And how did he choose to do that? Well, one of the ways he chose to be consistent in Scripture was he spoke to us through men. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 2 says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I've spoken to you. Write in a book all the words I've spoken to you. God has for some reason said, listen, we went from an oral tradition where everything was passed down orally to now a written tradition where we are right now. Now, by the way, most of the world still works off an oral tradition, okay? So spoiled Americans who have spell check on your computers, I'd I love to watch you try to get on a whiteboard and spell things because you can't. You've relied upon technology in such a way that you can barely even write anymore. And, and do you know what's interesting about that? Good story. You'll remember the story of the peasant and the king from Soren Kierkegaard from the 19th century today. You may not remember anything else that I have to say today, but you'll remember that story because it's oral. I didn't write it down for you. We didn't read it together. You'll remember it. But God knew at some point what we were going to need to do is go back to take the oral tradition and write it down. And he said to Jeremiah, write these things down. You know why God often told people to write things down? Because this was God's way of saying, write this down because this is what's going to happen. I'll bet you eternity on it. Write it down so that generations pass this, who may not actually speak this language, but may actually learn to read faster than they learn to speak. They'll have this reality. Write this down so that someone on the other side of the planet 3,000 years from now who comes to the same conclusions, we, we, we will stop calling it coincidence and we'll start seeing how the word of God powerfully moves across the entire planet from the east to the west. Write this down so we can prove his consistency. Those who seek to find errors in the Bible and the men who wrote them, they are in great peril of trying to justify their own behavior so that they can be happy about how they live, not happy about the God who loves them. Because after all, don't we really just need somebody to blame? Isn't that what we're really looking for? It started in the garden. It's this woman you gave me. It continued on. As Noah was building the ark, the people began to mock him and to criticize him. 
And I love Bill Cosby's version on this. Remember Bill Cosby, the one we all grew up with in the Cosby Kids, the Jello Pudding Pop guy, the one that we loved and adored and just thought he was the greatest guy, Cliff Huxtable, the one who's now in prison for sexual immorality? Do you remember that guy? Boy, we loved him until, right? And the pages turned. We look for these icons who speak in our lives, and we trust them, we follow them, we respect them. We do all the things that they tell us to do. We buy their products. We, we, we let their celebrity endorsements are until it's something that we don't like or they do something, and we completely ostracize ourselves from that. But when is the last time God did something immoral? But yet we turn our back on him because actually God has always been right in the plumb line. He's been right where he said he would be. He's done exactly what he said he would do. And he's reminded us that in Scripture through the variations of multiple men that he had write down his interaction with them to show the reality of mankind and the love that God has for mankind and is calling us back so much that he would send his son to leave heaven to dwell amongst us. That's the good news. The consistency of Scripture is also seen in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37 and 38. It says this, If anyone think they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church because there were many within the church who just thought they were holier than thou, and they would stand up and they would begin to prophesy and they would say things. And this is still happening in today's modern time where people would stand up in, in, in church and in a, the more charismatic worship environments and they'll begin to prophesy and they'll begin to speak. There's actually a movement right now in today's world, listening prayer. And if you look at it on the edges, it's really not that big a deal. But then what you realize is that this ideal of listening prayer is where we all sit down and we get real quiet and we just listen to God. So far, so good. Now, in about five minutes, I want all of us to reveal what God revealed to us in our quiet time. Now, listen. The Holy Spirit dwells within the heart of men who have received Jesus as their Lord and Savior and said, I am indeed a sinner. I'm in need of salvation. And the Holy Spirit does speak to us. He actually groans on our behalf and prays for us when we don't know what to pray and helps us to interpret the truth of God's word. But I will tell you something about the Holy Spirit is that he does not tell us things that are contrary to Scripture. He does not give us new revelations that are not backed up in Scripture. God, I don't know if I should have this job or not. There was a man years ago in a church in Arkansas. They were a very charismatic church. They didn't go so far as rattlesnakes. It's more of a West Virginia thing. For my friends in the back. But... They began to worship and carry on, and a man began to stand up and talk in tongues. And he was carrying on, and he was just getting after it. And, of course, for some people, they were excited, and they were clapping and carrying on. Others were looking and going, they're really not sure about this. And then there was somebody who was back there going, what does the Scripture say about this? And the Scripture says tongues is a gift given to those, but whenever it is used in the practice of worship, it should not disrupt the flow of worship, and there should be someone there to interpret that, and it should be challenged and tested against the Scriptures. And so the pastor did what a wise, smart, godly man did. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not have the power of interpretation. God is not giving me that gift. Is there anybody in here who can interpret what's going on, what this brother is doing over here? And he's over here just jabbering, just carrying on. Yeah, whatever, whatever the case may be, right? And nobody could do it, and, the, and the, the brother would not stop. And finally, one old boy stood up, and he says, pastor, I can interpret. He just said he's given $10,000 to the building fund. You see, the problem with pro false prophets is that you cannot you cannot challenge them because there's no way of proving them. 
So whenever we have this quiet time and we have these new revelations from God, if this side of the room has this revelation and this side of the room has an opposing revelation, where's the tiebreaker? The truth is it's, it's here. And honestly, probably neither one of you had that, re- that new revelation from God. And let me tell you something else. If you don't know the voice of God calling and speaking to you and talking to you, whether it be audible in your heart or in the, the, the Word of God, don't go making something up. You know, I haven't read my Bible in probably six, seven years. Even then, I really only read it when you put it up on the screen, Pastor. But let me tell you what God told me today. Let me tell you what God told you today. Read your Bible. That's what he told you today. Oh, but I can't refute you because I don't know what went on in your heart. I don't know what the conversation you and God had. Okay, fair enough. Let's test it against the Scriptures. Because if there's anybody prophesying and it doesn't back up in these scriptures, then let's put it in its proper place, someplace else. Let's go back to the reality and the consistency of scripture. The Bible has, is, and will be proven right. It either did, is, or will happen exactly as the Bible happened. It doesn't really matter if you understand or agree with it. It's going to happen that way. I'm pretty sure the Egyptians, who didn't know the one true God, did not see the waters crashing down upon them even though, get this, hang on a second, Moses stands up, parts the Red Sea, all the Israelites walk across on dry land, and what do the Egyptians do? Let's follow. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I would have taken that same leap of faith. Hey, did you notice that their God provided an escape plan? Maybe we should just do what they do and hope for the same thing. It's arrogance. It's foolishness. It's pride. It's all the things the enemy does when, listen, when you are not well versed in who God is. Not that you know the Bible and have it memorized, can read it backwards and forwards. But when you don't know the God of the Bible, all of those other things create solutions to your little problems that are not biblically sound. The Bible has been consistent about who God is and revealing his will for us over and over and over again. Finally, we see the application of Scripture, which by far is probably the most challenging thing. It's also one of the greatest scapegoats. Well, I really don't know what the Bible has to say, but since I don't, that means I can get away with whatever I want to. There's an old biker years and years ago, I believe Charles Stanley may have told this story a long time ago, one of my favorites. And he was being witnessed to by someone, and he, he finally one day said, you know what, I, I believe this God of yours may be right, and this Jesus did in fact die for my sins, and, and I, I, I want to have my sins forgiven because I've come to a place where I recognize that I am indeed a sinful person, and I have emptiness in my life, and I want to get that filled up. And so this, this man became a believer, and he was baptized, and he was spending a little time reading God's word, and he was still though, hanging out with some of his biker buddies who were not believers, not saying that all people that ride bikes aren't believers. Many of them are. And one day they were out there having a couple of beers, him and his buddies, and one of the guys throws him a beer, and he goes, no thanks, I, I've given up drinking. And he says, well, wait a minute, didn't this Jesus of yours turn water into wine? And he said, man, I, I really don't know, but he turned beer into furniture in my house. You know, the, the transformation that God can have in someone's life when they get to know him, and they apply the reality of what God has already said to their lives. Instead of looking for a new way or a different way or a better way or a halfway, 
to appease my lifestyle now so I don't have to make any changes when I should just go back to who God has always been and I see his consistency in Scripture. I see his authority in Scripture because it just speaks of everything he is. I can actually listen to what Scripture has to say and apply it to my lives. Many times Sunday morning you get a good listening to, but the application starts as soon as you leave this place. And I, I wonder if all of us would just be honest for a moment and say, you know what, I love a good message, but I don't always know how to apply that. I do. I listen to some great messages throughout the week, and I struggle with the application. I do my best to try to find ways of application. When Moses was taking the people after they had been wandering around, and God says, I need to give you some laws so you know how to react with one another and how to react with me, we call them the Ten Commandments. Whenever he gave those to them, he also began to write down the rest of the law. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says this, Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. He's saying, pay attention. The things that God and I have been talking about on this mountain, the things that he told me to write down, the things that that he wants me to share with you so that you do know how to live with one another and with him because humanity doesn't change and God doesn't either. So I'm going to show you how to interact. Pay attention. Listen to these laws and decrees as I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land of the Lord. He gives them a promise from the very beginning. Listen to what I'm about to say because there's reward in this. And God is saying, I'll I'll give you the why you ought to listen and pay attention to my laws and decrees so that maybe that will entice you to better listen and apply my laws and decrees. Because if you'll do what I tell you to do, I will give you the land I promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I'll do all these things. There's a land God has set aside. There's a reward that God has set aside for those who listen to him and apply his teaching. But those who just listen to him and let it go in one ear and out the other, that reward's not there. And so he continues on um, when he says, This is the land of the Lord your God your ancestors is giving you. Do not add to it what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Any cherry pickers out there? Any portions of scripture you read and just go, nope, don't want to do that. I've probably shared this before, but one of the most challenging things for me on any given Sunday is to preach from Psalms. It is a challenge for me. It is very difficult. I would probably say right behind that would be Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the book of Revelation. Those are challenging things for me because they're hard to understand sometimes. There's poetry, and I don't like poetry, and there's all this other, you know, names that I can't hardly pronounce. There's all this other stuff in there, but it does not make the truth and validation of the authority of Scripture any different because I don't understand it, don't know it, and too lazy to read it and learn and study. Now my portion's a little bit different because that actually calls upon me to do for you. But God didn't say that I have ultimate authority. He said he does. And he's given us this so all of us can read the Scripture. I'm sure I've probably said a thing or two in this service today, let alone other services, or you've listened to a pastor preach before, and sometimes it's a little scary whenever I'll say something, all of a sudden I'll see somebody do this. They look at you with one eye. It's kind of weird y'all do that, right? They look at you with one eye, and they, 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 they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure, you know. And, of course, here's what's kind of fun, too. If you've been in church a long time, uh, well, you know, I heard a pastor preach that a little bit before. Okay, great. I'm not God and I'm not standing in his place for you. I'm doing my best. And if God puts it in your heart to say, hey, I need to challenge that against the scripture, that is the Holy Spirit speaking to you because God believes that his word is more consistent than his pastor is. And I'm okay with that. It just freaks me out a little bit because I feel like I did something wrong. That's my problem. 
consistency of Scripture leads us to a place to apply that, and God wants us to apply that. And so we get back to our original question, how do I know God and his will for my life? It is perhaps one of the greatest challenges we all have is understanding what God wants for me, from me, and wants me to do. How am I supposed to do this? How am I, how, when am I supposed to do this? When do I make these hard decisions? And how can I possibly take these hard decisions and blame them on God? Right? I mean, isn't it always easier to kind of pass those things away? If you don't believe me, here in a few minutes, those of you who are married, you're going to be talking about where you should go and have lunch. And if lunch is bad, you're going to blame whoever made that decision. There's your application for the day, right? We're looking for those things. So how can I know God's God and God's will for my life? Well, first of all, I think this. I think we have to understand that God's sovereign will, who God is, what God's going to do, cannot be stopped. Man has over and over and over and over tried to stop this. He's tried to, to get in the way. He's tried to manipulate God into being who he wants him to be or doing what he wants to do to entice him. But God's overall sovereign will does not change, and that means that God is going to do something, is doing something, that he actually, quite frankly, does not have to invite us in to know any of that. But he's going to do it anyway. He neither needs our approval or our participation. Doesn't that make you feel good about being God's cherished creation? That God's going to do stuff without your approval or participation? Many a times that's happened in our lives where God has asked us to do something or encouraged us to do something or begged for us to do something. And we said, no, God, not today. I don't think so. And he takes the blessing he had prepared for us and he gives it to somebody else. Because they were obedient and following him and what they were doing. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10 says, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end of the beginning from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. We have to understand that to know God and know God's will is that he has a sovereign will that is functioning and moving and progressing and going forward, whether we understand it, like it, or participate in it or not. God is God, and he will do what he wants to do, and that is his prerogative. And in order for, for people to say, well, I just can't trust a God who doesn't get my input, that says nothing about God and everything about that person. I just can't trust a God who doesn't let me in on everything. That says nothing about God and says a whole lot about you. It's not God you don't trust. It's probably you you don't trust. The second thing we see is that God reveals his will to us through Scripture. A familiar passage for many Christians is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. God reveals his will to us through Scripture. Now, he does so in such a way that he, he reveals his will for all humanity, but if we're only looking for God to speak on, on generalities or specificities of the time versus realities of humanity, then what we're going to find is that God doesn't talk about some of the things that are plaguing me and bothering me in my life. But if we go back to the authority of Scripture and the consistency of Scripture, we see that Timothy is, is writing and says, all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God, I don't know what I'm doing. Read my Bible. God, I don't know how to do this. Read my Bible. God, I don't know if I can do this. Read the Bible. God, I'm not sure this has ever been done before. Read the Bible. God, I'm not sure there's anybody with me. Read the Bible. God, I'm not sure if, if this is appropriate or not. Read the Bible. All of these things that, that God's will is for our lives can be boiled back down to applying them against the scriptures. That is not 2021. That's not the day we live in. 
Would someone please just tell me what I can do and what I can't do? Would someone please just make a decision for me? So with that being said, let me just bring this out because it seems to be a fun and popular conversation these days. I believe that the fundamental problem that most people, particularly conservative evangelical Christians in 2021, are having with the mask mandate in the state of Texas particularly, because most of you don't live anyplace else, but in the state of Texas particularly, the problem you have with a mask mandate is not whether you should or shouldn't wear one to protect yourself or someone else. The problem you have with a mask mandate is because it's not your decision to make. It's not your authority in your own life to decide whether you do or don't want to wear one of those things because a government force is telling you what you should or shouldn't do. That has fundamentally been the problem. Church, I want to tell you something. Thank you. Thank you for listening to your pastor back in August. Whenever I said to you this, if you want to wear one, you wear one. If you don't want to wear one, don't wear one. But leave people alone if they have an opposing opinion to yours and not let this become such a thing that divides us as people of God who are trying to be more like him instead of trying to get everybody else to be more like me, regardless of what side of that you sit on. I want to thank you for that because you also heard those last words where I said, I'm done talking about that. I'm not debating that anymore. But let me tell you something, friends. If we're going to let something like that permeate itself into church, and it's based upon our authority, our own personal authority to make decisions in our own life, and we're going to apply all those things, it is not a short leap to say, God, why have you allowed all these stupid people to rule my life and force me to or not to do something I do or do not want to do? When in reality, God, how can I be more like you in all circumstances? How can I be more loving and caring to my brother and sister who have an opposing view to me? I don't have to agree with them. I don't have to be on the same page with them. I may have to listen to their fear or listen to their strength or listen to whatever the case may be, but I'm going to love them unconditionally because it does not change the reality of mankind because there's nowhere in here except when it talks about women wearing headscarves that we're told to wear a mask or not. And we can't get on the place to go, well, it's not in the Bible, so we ought not do it. My F-150 is not in the Bible either, but I'm pretty sure it's demon-possessed. I drive it to get to church to worship. I go more than a quarter mile on, on the Sabbath. If you really want to get technical about it, that's in the Bible, by the way. Finally, I want to say this. The problem we have with understanding God's will in our life has a lot to do with our knowledge of Scripture, our trust in Scripture, our ability for Scripture to speak into our lives and for us to respond to that not as an authoritative book, but a book that records the authoritative words from God to us. All of those things are necessary and important. I'm a big fan of education, but there's a really a lot of smart dummies out there who know a lot and do very little. But the challenge we have regarding what does God want for my life, what is God's will for my life, comes this way. Willful, unrepentant sin keeps us from understanding what God's will is for our life. I don't think we really understand the difference between want and will. When Jesus prayed that day, he said, my wants be fulfilled. No. He said, thy will be done. He did plead with the Father that day. If there's any other way, Lord, take this cup from me. It was a cup of redemption. 
If there's any other way, but if there's not, then I will go to the cross plainly because I love that peasant woman. Because I love her so much that I would leave these things. You don't know what the will of God is in your life, most likely because you have willful, unrepentant sin. And the reason many people in our world have willful, unrepentant sin is because we've tried to reduce things down to where they're not sinful anymore. We could take the issue of abortion as a really great place to look at that and say instead of trying to figure out what murder is, what taking, the intentional taking of a life is, we've tried to redefine what life is. We've tried to change it in such a way that we can get it out of the confines of Scripture because God says not to murder, not to take life. And so if we can redefine life, we can do that. We've done the same thing with marriage. From the very beginning, it was between one man and one woman. That's how God designed it. And now that's being twisted and thwarted. And we're trying to find ways to make the Scripture validate those sinful things so that we can feel better about them. Some of you read from the King James Bible. You remember that was the authoritative word. It even says the authoritative version in some of your Bibles. The these and the thous are kind of hard to speak of. I know that. I get that. But let me tell you something. There is right now a version of the Bible called the King James Bible that's put out by the LGBTQ community that has changed some of the issues in Scripture to make it acceptable for their lifestyle that is contrary to God. Now, let me tell you something. I love people they're all made in God's image. And if there's anybody struggling in those areas, whether it be abortion or homosexuality, whatever the case may be, God came and sent his son to die for those people just like he did for me. And I'm not like him if I say differently than that. But we cannot twist scripture and bend it to our will. Those are extreme cases that are real in our reality. But the everyday things like the white lies, like the, oh, it's not really cheating on my spouse when I look at pornography. I'm not really with this person. I'm just with them mentally. I guess it's not really gambling online. I don't know where that money went to that you lost. Lose some money. It's real, right? We try to bend things around to make our lifestyle fit us instead of trying to let God shape us and mold us and show us who we are and how valuable we are that he would leave heaven for earth. And he does so. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 8. Now, I, I want to tell you something this morning that I didn't do. Normally, I'll have you park in a place of Scripture, but you know how hard it is to talk about the Bible in one place? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8 is a good picture of understanding the unrepentant sin in our life. This is an example for us. It's not an end-all, be-all, but it says this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, we could stop there, talk about the doctrine of sanctification, about God purifying you and cleaning you up and making you from unholy to holy only through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is his will, his desire, his want, his every single motion, his sovereign will that's unthwarted to make you holy. Now, catch this for a second. Not everybody's going to choose that, but it is God's will that it be done. And he goes on to tell us that you should avoid sexual immorality that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction 
not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. In our microwave, popcorn, fast-paced, on-demand, whatever society we live in these days, we're not spending the time we need to spend with our Creator, getting to know Him through His Word as He's revealed to us, not hidden from us, revealed to us so that we know how to live our lives, not by this blatant set of rules, but by this masterpiece that has been preserved through history and translation and war and seas and all these things where it's, it's just been preserved for us to remind us over and over and over and over again that the sovereign will of God is to know us and to love us and for him to be with us forever. And in order for that to happen, we must accept his authority, his consistency, and apply the words that he gives to us to live our lives. And there's no greater place for us to do so than getting to the scripture and saying, you know what, God, I want to know more of you because the more I know about you, the more you're going to tell me about me. You have an identity crisis? You're not sure what God wants for your life? Sure, you could talk to a friend. But you also could go to God's Word and then go talk to a friend and say, hey, I was reading this in the Bible the other day. Let's talk about that together. I believe God's provided for us the Bible, and He does this, and this is the final thing I'll say today. The Bible is God's way of revealing Himself to us and revealing His will for us. So many people read the Bible thinking that God is doing something to us instead of realizing that he's doing it for us. And the Bible reveals God and his will for us each and every day in our life. And to be still and to know that he is God is not just sitting there and hoping that God will suddenly reveal himself in such a way when he's given us such a tool to know that it's him. Because every day there are demons masquerading like they're angels leading us down a path we want, don't really want to go down, but we go down it anyway because our fleshly desires lead us that way. But the Bible tells us who we are and what God wants for us. It's not a hidden mystery. So I would remind you to back up a little bit, have a real conversation with a real God who knows everything. If there's that unrepentant sin in your life, sin in your life, you need to give that over to God because that's stopping you from hearing all the things that God has been yelling at you through Scripture telling you over and over again as he did to Daniel, as he did to Jeremiah, as he did to Paul, as he did to Timothy, as he did to John, this John, not the one I want. That's why I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that it guides my beliefs and actions each and every day. And what I believe influences the way I think, act, and live. What I believe influences the way I think, act, and live. The Bible is either all wrong, all right, or all made up. You need to get to a place where you believe that. And I pray that you will see that God is revealing himself in such great ways. I know I'm long this morning. I don't apologize for that. I'd spend all day if I'd get you to stand up while I read scripture and you would apply to what's going on. But they throw us out of here at noon, so I guess I'll try. Join me in prayer. Your word, O Lord, is a sweet song to our ears. Father, we're told to taste and see that the Lord is good. And the only taste we have these days is not this experiential feeling, this warm fuzzy that comes by just being satisfied with the decision that we made. But Lord, instead, by hearing you speak to us through the pages and pages of your recorded word to remind us of your great love for us. Father, thank you that you do love us the way that you do. Thank you that you've preserved the scripture for us. God, I'll be the first to confess that sometimes the Bible's hard to read and understand. 
I know you don't hide those mysteries from us. I think sometimes you want us to work for it, Lord, not to earn the right to understand, but to respect what's been given to us, to see what you've gone through for our salvation. And so, God, this week I pray that we'll get into your word, that we'll study your word, that we'll read it and be inspired, we'll read it and be convicted, that we'll read it and even be confused, Lord, but that we'll spend time with you daily, getting to know you a little bit, hoping that one day the prince will come and that relationship will be forged and we'll fall in love with you as we read your word, just as you love us. Father, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for what he did on the cross. Thank you for this beautiful body. Would you bless them and keep them, Lord? Bring us back next week so we can worship together. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you, friends. Have a great rest of your week.